everyone, this is Derek Mack. Thanks for joining us for a Circuit Rider podcast. To know us, we are a YWAM missions movement in Huntington Beach, California, with a passion to save the lost, revive the save, and train them all. Circuit Rider Conversations podcast is a series of raw conversations surrounding the Bible, Jesus, and what it means to live like him in today's culture. You are listening to a Circuit Rider Conversation podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to CR Conversations, Circuit Rider Conversations. That's it. I'm here with Michael Pierce. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Back Derek. to the laboratory. I love being here. It's great. I just want to comment that your beard has grown a lot since the last time we did this together. Yeah. You know, Michael actually stays up and prays for me outside of my <laughs> For do- your beard out- specifically. I mean, I'm sleeping in bed. My wife is there and he's outside the door praying for me to uh, for some sort of deliverance over my inability over the last yeah. few years to grow a beard. Like but it's now, worked. but it's now it's worked in some. But I, of course, I'm not to your level. Michael, you, you, we honor close, you. Though. Look at that. We honor you as the bearded man. As a matter of fact, we are continuing on this subject of revival history, That's reformation, true. and how many revivalists, reformers, preachers, famous Christians that changed history, how many of them had beards? It'd be easier to say how many didn't. Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly <laughs> the point. So I did talk to Michael about potentially shaving this, um, but mm. I think he may have convinced me to uh, continue just by that statement alone. Yeah. How many did not oh, is man. better to count, easier to count. So that's good. Welcome, guys. We're so <laughs> glad you're here. Um, uh, we are. Remember, last week was the Reformation. If you have not seen that, go back and watch that. All of this revival, Reformation history, all of this church history we're talking about really coincides with with each other. They it flows together, and so the Reformation leads into this what we're talking about, that's but. True. I got to say a couple things first. Um, missions history is something that's very dear to my heart, something very dear to your heart. We both probably would be dead somewhere if it wasn't for our it's wives. <laughs> Just say, <laughs> the leadership in, of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, in, in North Africa somewhere. <laughs> I, I don't know. We we both like bleed missions. We both like w- want. We both, I mean, he's going to take me on a camping trip where he's going to teach me how to be a missionary out in the wilderness. Um, no, I'm joking, but, uh, we are actually going to, we actually, we actually are going and we, but either way, we both believe like that traditional missions vibe, obviously yeah. missions, isn't just, you know, going to North Africa, going to the Middle East missions is, is you and your city taking the gospel in action from inaction to action. That's right. And that, that really could be a, uh, a fantastic definition of missions itself, but we, we so honor both of us so honor the missionaries of old who have we can sit here and say you're going to read some statistics at the end but we we can confidently say that christianity isn't just a western thing yeah it's global absolutely it's global christianity isn't you can't you cannot say you're not allowed to say anymore that that's more of a white western thing absolutely it is a global the, the biggest church in the world is in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fastest growing church is in Iran. Yep. Um, there's, there's, I, I can't remember the statistic by, by 2050, one in every six human beings on the planet will be an African, Christian. an African Christian. So, I mean the, this, uh, but 
church history really is not a history of missions. Church mm -hmm. history in, in a lot of ways because of practical things like lack of education yeah. and believing the earth was flat yeah. and, you know, not knowing about other nations and, and all of those technology, all those different things. It didn't really allow for people to have this inspiration to go to the ends of the earth and to even think about that conceptually might've been hard for some people to even think about when you're just trying to get your yeah, crop so that you can not die. Yep. Um, you know, that, so that's, that's kind of the environment, but church missions history really sparks after the reformation. It is amazing how after the gospel is rediscovered and reimposed upon the church as being the centerpiece mm -hmm. that immediately following that is some of the greatest missions uh, the, the best vibrato yeah. of mission sound comes almost immediately after that. And so Absolutely. our subject this week is the Moravian, Moravian movement. It's the student volunteer missions movement and it's modern missions in our day and how all of these things flow together. I want to read you some statistics though. Okay. Because we still, even though we're going to talk about this and we're going to honor and we're going to go, Whoa, look at what God did. Yeah. There's still great need in our day. And remember, Jesus' last command is go into all the earth. Go into all the earth. And so if you are not doing something in some way, shape, or form to obey that, whether giving to it or partially going yourself or sending someone or you yourself are going, then you're in disobedience. And how many young people we run across that want a prophetic word about the next thing they're supposed to do or the next calling they're going to have or this type, type so of thing. True. I would rather be obedient to the Bible than have a prophetic word. Mm -hmm. It seems like people in past times who were obedient had a lot more joy and fruit than people who are just wondering what their next prophetic word is. And so this is so key for us. Uh, but let me read you these statistics, okay? Still great need in our day. There's still, there's nearly 3 billion people that are considered unreached people, meaning they have no chance of hearing the gospel and they have no clue what the gospel is. On top of this, there's nearly another billion, more like 750 million people who are in the unevangelized category, meaning there is, there is someone that could represent it, but they just have not had the opportunity yet to hear the gospel or they just have not encountered it yet, but they could. So it's nearly 4 billion people on the planet who don't know the gospel, have not heard the gospel, and if you are an evangelical Christian, which, which all of us probably evangelical just means, uh, you believe the, you believe the Bible, you believe the gospel and you believe it probably in the more, uh, reform sense, the reformation sense, the pro Protestant sense. That's kind of what evangelical means. There's once again, that's probably a butcher definition for some of you out there, but it does not, it's not a denomination. It's if you believe the Bible, you believe the gospel, the U, U, the UN Gelion, the, the biblical gospel that the Bible portrays, then you are an evangelical 70% of evangelical evangelical Christians have never even heard the term unreached people group, never even heard the term, wow. um, uh, of all people who consider themselves missionary, less than half of 1% are in a place that is considered unreached. Less than half of 1% of, of, all of all missionaries are in a place that's considered unreached. That for every one missionary, there's 71,000 unreligious people. For every one missionary, there's 60,000 tribal people. For every one missionary, there's 179,000 Hindus. For every one missionary, there's 260,000 Buddhists. And for every one Muslim, or for every one missionary, there's 405,000 Muslims. 
If you are a Muslim in the world, you have a 90% chance you will never meet a Christian. 90% chance you will never meet a Christian. So the need is still great in our day. So today is about being inspired to give your all for the gospel of Jesus Christ being spread throughout the whole globe in understanding that if we are believers who consider ourselves gospel saturated, then the natural thing for a gospel saturated Christian to do is to give that gospel out, mm-hmm. not just to your inner cities, not just all of those things are great. Not, and we're all about that. I mean, M- Michael and I are living in America right now. We, we travel to Europe, we travel to Africa, all this everything, but we live here, but still none, nonetheless for us, I, I think my greatest goal in my life would be able to, would be to see people sent out to the nations, to the hard places, to the places that don't speak our languages, to the, uh, to the places that don't, that don't have the same culture and that have never heard the gospel to be able to bring the Bible to them, to be able to bring the truth of salvation to them. That's, that's my, that's my deepest heartfelt goal. I can honestly say that. So we're going to dive in now. Missions history, like I said, doesn't coincide with church history. It comes after the Reformation. It sparks with these people called the Moravians. Yep. Michael's really going to take us away. I'm basically not going to talk from here on out. I'm going <laughs> to shut up. Uh, Michael is... Please talk. He, he is all of these guys combined into one person <laughs> that we're going to talk about. It's trying to be like you, Derek. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, no. Who... who t- tell us about missions history. Where does yeah. it start? Who does it start with? Okay. Specifically, these Moravians. Yeah, so this is probably one of my favorite topic, topics to talk about in all of revival history, Christian history in general. From the book of Acts to these guys are like, uh, these guys and then the book of Acts are like, man, they're just mind-blowing their commitment, the purity of the gospel. So the Moravians, um, if, you guys get, if you guys have had the chance to watch the episode of CR Conversations with Derek and his brother Troy talking about the Reformation, they went into the Reformers and who those guys were, what was happening, um, and so many men uh, and women being persecuted by the Catholic Church at the yeah. time for basically translating the Bible into native language of the people in, yes. in different countries and people groups in Europe. And, yes. um, and so after that period, so the 15, 1500, really the Reformation started, you know, uh, with Wycliffe earlier, mm-hmm. um, and then a few hundred years of persecution, and now we're in the 1700s. There's refugees all over Europe that are fleeing Catholic persecution, that are followers of those original guys like Jan Hus. So as you have the Hussites, um, it's a whole group of people, and, and Lutherans, and all these different kind of splits of Protestantism, and they don't necessarily all agree with each other, but they do agree on the basic principles of the Protestant movement yes. um, to leave the Catholic Church. So, and if you don't know what the word Protestant means, it actually comes from the word protest. Yep. And the, so if you are a Protestant believer, meaning you're not, you're not Catholic and you come from one of those reformed systems, so to speak, although I hate saying it that way, is you are coming from the protesters, the, yeah. the, the Protestants, the people who protested the muddying of the gospel, which I just think is cool. Man, it is so true. And the things that they were protesting against were things like um, you know, that you had to pay for indulgences to get mm-hmm. forgiveness of your sins, that the only way to have true forgiveness and atonement was to confess to a priest and to pay money. And, um, you know, you go down the list of the things yes. the Catholic Church was teaching at that time. So anyway, you've got this group across uh, across Europe and mostly in modern day Czech Republic, which was Moravia at the time. So the Moravians come from Moravia, modern day Czech Republic. They're refugees 
from Catholic persecution. Now, uh, how did they end up becoming this incredible movement of a few hundred families that touched the whole globe? Yeah. Is It all centers on how Jesus used this one young man named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, wow. um, who was a you have German. You a touch of Bavarian in your German. Oh, thank so you. Nice. That's a good accent. <laughs> I'm working on it. Hopefully there's a German that, that is watching this right um, now. Hopefully there is. So uh, Count Zinzendorf, we'll call him. Uh, that's his name, Count Zinzendorf. From an early age, he is, he's German. He's this, the heir of German nobility. Um, and so he's expected to be in the government, in politics. And from the day he's born, he's from, he's from a family line where he is assigned as an infant the, the title of Count. So he's literally Count as an infant. You'd call yes. him Count Nick. Um, you know, so it's awesome. Is that what we should um, call Nick Brent now? Yeah, Nick Brent is yeah. Count Nick. Yeah. Nick, Amen. if you're watching, <laughs> you're now the Count. So Count Zinzendorf, I'm going to speed through his timeline really quick because the fun part is what happens uh, later. But basically, he's this man who is wealthy, one of the wealthiest of his time in Europe. This is in 1700s. He's born in the year 1700. Uh, and so he, in his teenage years, actually as a young child, encounters Jesus. And he's so enraptured with Jesus. He, would, um, he was caught as a six-year-old or seven-year-old writing love letters to Jesus and throwing them out his window of his, the tower of the castle that he lived in. Wow. Um, and it's, there's a, a moment when the Swiss army is invading the town where he is and they burst into his room and they find him praying wholeheartedly to Jesus just enraptured and they the men who bust into the room felt like they had walked in on like some serious intimate conversation but it was wow. a six-year-old talking to God wow. in prayer so that's who uh, Count Zinzendorf was amazing um yeah, he was just this incredibly bright man. Uh, at 15, he knew he could read the New Testament in Greek, was fluent in Latin and French and German and English um, <laughs> at 15. Uh, so that's the kind of guy he was. Um, so there's a moment in his life when he is walking through this art museum and uh, I have my notes here. I'm just going to look because I want to get this name right. This is when he really had a moment where he was, he always loved Jesus. He was saved, but there was a moment when he was like, I'm giving you everything, Jesus mm -hmm. use my life. And it was really when he decided he wanted to lay down his reputation as nobility for whatever, because his whole family wanted him to become a politician and they, they could tell he was leaning towards ministry and they were all trying to encourage him not to do that. Uh, but he was so focused on his personal heart relationship with Jesus. That's what it was called. was a heart religion. Um, the heart religion was the way, the way he talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's, he's walking through this museum in Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf. I don't, I, I'm sorry, Dusseldorf, Europeans. Um, and he saw Domenico Fetti's Eke homo, which is a means behold the man in Latin. It's a portrait of the thorn crowned Jesus. And he read the inscription below the portrait and it said, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? And Zinzendorf said to himself, I've loved him for a long time, but I've never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. So that's the moment. Oh, dude, you can see. I always get goosebumps <laughs> in that moment because that every missionary, every Christian needs to have a moment yes. like that in their life. Absolutely. Where they the, and and some people glamorize that statement and even and and make it into a different statement. But it it, it says like like Michael saying there, I've never actually done anything for him, mm. and, and but now, 
wherever the lamb leads, I'm going to follow. Yeah. And, you know, they had this logo, this insignia for um, the Moravian movement. It was this lamb and he had a flag yeah. and it would, it said, our lamb had conquered, our lamb has conquered, let us follow. Yeah. And every Christian needs to have a moment yeah. like that. We, that, that, if you can have an encounter like that, that will be the destruction of passive Christianity. That's right. That will be the destruction for you of inaction in your life, moving you into the action that the gospel requires. It's yeah. such a powerful moment. Keep it going. Is. And it's not workspace. It's not like, what have you done for Jesus? But it's sincerely looking at your life and asking the question, are there decisions that have made that I've made that have significantly impacted or altered the trajectory of my life? That, ha that I have made solely because I love him. Mm -hmm. Can you look at your life and say, these are the decisions that I made that have affected the trajectory of my life because I love him. Yes. And if not, then you need to fight for this moment, you know? And it's something that Jesus brings, but this is what led to, I mean, we'll so see. Good. Count Zinzendorf, what he did after this moment touched, it, it created the modern day Christianity that we have today. Yes. Without this moment and without him responding, we would not be here. Yeah. The circuit riders never would have existed, have existed. John Wesley never would have had an awakening. Yeah. Francis Asbury never would have landed on the shores of America. Yes. America would be such a different, imagine America, the Salvation Army never would have been created. Yeah. I mean, you could go down the list of things that were impacted by the Moravian, the William Carey probably never would have gone to India without yeah. Count Zinzendorf's life. Yeah. I mean, the impact of this one man on the globe yeah, after this moment and as a, and this was as a teenager and then everything he did that we're about to go into he did in his 20s wow. everything that he did that touched the world happened in his 20s wow and of course he kept on serving the lord until he was 60 and he passed away in 1760 but it's so important to understand that this man in his 20s lived a decade that touched the entire globe and affected the history the trajectory of christianity yeah. so let's get into it so uh he has this moment and he hears about these refugees um and uh you know he's got all this land in a place in germany called that eventually would be named hernhut which yeah. means the lord's watch but he's got all this land he just got married He's 21 years old, I believe, and someone approaches him and says, hey, there's all these refugees that are coming from mm -hmm. uh, Moravia and from Europe. Uh, is, there, is there any way that we could help some of them out? And yeah. Count Zinzendorf, you know, it wasn't some crazy encounter, but Count Zinzendorf had had a dream for years that he said, if I could, if I could foster a community of believers who love Jesus and live in John 17 unity, loving each other the way that the Father loves them, that would be the dream of his life. That was, that was Count Zinzendorf's dream as, as a 20 year old, you know, mm -hmm. just like if I could have a community of believers who live that way. And then Jesus said, by their love, the world will know. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that is just so simple. That was his dream. It's true. And so then when he gets this opportunity of refugees, like, man, yeah, totally. So it was only six or seven, I believe, the first group. Um, but slowly in the 1720s, uh, more and more refugees would come, and then they would send word to their families who are yeah. fleeing Catholic persecution. Um, and then from Bohemia and from Moravia and all these places, they would end up flooding into where uh, in the mid-1720s, so just in a few years, there's now about 300 families that live in Hernhut. It's this village that's on Count Zinzendorf's land that he's inherited. Uh, and, and there's, imagine 300 families. Yeah. And, but the thing is, they're all different 
like streams and offshoots of Protestantism and all from not only that, they speak different languages, they're from different cultures and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can imagine there's a lot of tension. Yeah. There's one guy who's literally going around who is crazy. He ended up having some major mental issues later, but he was trying to convince everyone that Count Zinzendorf was the dragon from Revelation, who is the Antichrist. <laughs> um, so wow. imagine, I mean, it's just crazy division, right? My, In, I used to do that to Michael too <laughs> as well, but we came, we came in. Yeah, we, we, thank we, you, brother. Yeah, we, Thank you for Reconciled. forgiving me. Yeah. For, Called you the Antichrist yeah. for a while, but I've turned from that. <laughs> yeah, I forgive you still. Um, <laughs> just imagine that. I, I know. I know. That's why. why that's why I make so, light of it. Because imagine if I did do that, you'd be like, <laughs> "What the heck? He's an insane human." Like, what did he do? He's letting you all live on his land. Okay. So anyway, so um, speeding up through this timeline here. Um, Count Zinzendorf in 1727, so he's 27 years old, decides, I'm not going to let this community that I've created implode and become worse than if they had stayed Mm -hmm. somewhere else. So he decides with his wife and kids to move from their estate into the middle of this place in Hernhut. And they actually took up residence inside what was the orphanage in Hernhut at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're living with all of the orphan kids who are fleeing, you know, the parents have been killed or uh, deserted them or whatever. Um, And so that's where they're living in Hernhut. And then they spend the next year literally going house to house, eating dinner with every single family in Hernhut, praying with them, walking them through the scriptures and coming to a place of reconciliation with every single family. It was a unity campaign, just living room after living room, you know, kitchen table after kitchen table. Um, and then at, right at the end of that unity campaign, they culminated by coming together for what they called a love feast in the chapel at Hernhut. Mm-hmm. And in this chapel, uh, they didn't know, but what they were coming into, God was about to, the Holy Spirit was about to fall in such a way that would alter the trajectory of the world. So they're coming together after in, in unity and they, they have a love feast and they're worshiping and they're praying. And then they decide we're going to read out a constitution that is the way we will live as Moravians, as, as the people of Hernhut. So I'm going to read out this line. They said this one line. This is so, so profound. Please write this down. Get into this. People on university campuses, in your cities, imagine what the Holy Spirit would do. He did this with the Moravians. What would he do with you if you gathered believers together in such a campaign? So this one line, they read this out and pray in agreement. And then the Holy Spirit falls in such a way Mm -hmm. that it goes into, they launch into 100 years of unceasing prayer. So this line, they pray it out and then the Holy Spirit falls for a hundred years. They don't stop praying 24 seven. There's a short break. And then for 20 more years, they prayed. So basically 120 years of unceasing prayer and worship launched from this one moment. So what is the line? So simple. It said, Hernhut shall stand in unceasing love with all children of God in all churches, criticize none, and take part in no quarrel or anything improper against those differing in opinion, except to preserve for itself the evangelical purity, the purity of the gospel, in its simplicity and grace. Wow. It's incredible. So they basically said, we're not going to criticize anybody. We're going to stand in love, unceasing love and agreement with everyone. And the only time that we'll criticize is to protect the purity and simplicity of the gospel. Wow. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit falls. And for 120 years, they don't stop praying. During that 120 years, uh, this is amazing. 
Let's read off some of the things that happened. The first great awakening happened during that 120 years. The second great awakening happened. The salvation and calling of some of the great missionaries we're going to read about, read about Hudson Taylor, David Livingstone, so many more. Um, the abolishing of the European slave trade by William Wilberforce. Um, and of course, all the circuit riders, the, the actual original circuit riders launched out. And these are just a few of the things that happened during their 120 years of prayer. Well. prayer that touched the world. Um, so Count Zinzendorf kind of led out this thing. And then after this time, so they're, they're praying and they, it wasn't all in the chapel. They would pray. And I, I think nightly and weekly, they would have different kinds of services where mm -hmm. they're all together, but throughout the day and throughout the night, they assigned in their community groups of two. So Every, every two hours, yeah. the Moravians would meet somewhere in Hernhut. There was little tiny like coves that they would cut out of trails in the woods and little tiny buildings and sheds that in, if in case there was inclement weather. And just every, every Moravian knew at this time of the day, on this day of the week, it's my turn to pray for two hours. And so throughout the whole community, they spread for 100 years yeah. without stopping. And they would just pray two by two. Now, after a few years of doing that, just about three or four, then comes the part that touched the world. So um, this is when the Moravian well, mission. Pause there because oh, yeah, we yeah. got to talk. We got to talk about prayer just for a second because we're going to talk about prayer in a couple weeks with uh, with Chase. Um, yeah. I mean, prayer is such an essential reality to revival. Martin Luther, we talked about last week. He, he was at, he, you know, he was asked, Martin, you're so busy. How, how do you find a time to pray? And Martin responded, I, I'm so busy that I won't be able to do any of it unless I spend two hours in prayer. Wow. And so he, prayer is essential to everything we're talking about. Yeah. And it, would you just list off the things that happened during their 125, you said 125, 120, 120. So 120 years of prayer, please do not think in any way, shape or form that their prayers had nothing to do with this, that they were just praying and it was, and all these things were, all these things he's going to talk about were in some way, shape or form disconnected. No, God, yeah. God answers prayers of the saints that they don't even know are being answered. Yeah. I mean, in heaven, and imagine Count Zinzendorf sitting there going like, all of this yeah. happened? Oh, imagine how humbled <laughs> you would be. Imagine how freaked out you'd be. And I'm not, I'm not trying to elevate any way, shape, or form just one single movement, but the aspect of 120 years of unceasing prayer, or sorry, with, with one slight break in there, where you, and then all of the, will you read them off again, all yeah, the things yeah. that happened? So the first great awakening, which is George Whitfield, John Wesley, all of the circuit riders were launched shortly after this. Um, the second great awakening, which is the camp meetings and then further on, Charles yeah. Finney, all these guys, <clears throat> the, um, this, the, uh, all the, the primary missionaries that launched out to the ends of the earth, the yeah. William Carey's, Hudson Taylor's, yeah. C.T. Studd, David Livingstone, all those people. Um, the, and, and then what became the modern day missions movement and the student volunteer missions movement. Um, some other great notable things like the abolishing of slavery and the global yeah. slave trade out of Africa. Yeah. Um, was Huge. So just those are some of the things. There's the, you could go further down the list, but those are just some of the... It's incredible. All, all of that in 100... What, what would it be like... I just don't think this is stupid to say. What if in our ministries, in our churches, in circuit riders, we would at some point have 50 years. I'll take one year. I'll, yeah. I'll take, I'll take two, two hours. I don't know. Not two hours. <laughs> 30 days. A year. Whatever it is of unceasing prayer. 
why I just believe that personally, I know you believe this too, that prayer, the power in prayer is so much greater than if we just work. Yeah. Will you say that quote that that guy said to uh, us yeah, a number yeah. of years when, back? When you work, you work, but when you pray, God works. Such a simple quote. That was from a professor from one of the, from, from a university who came to speak at one of our school schools. When you work, you work. When you pray, God works. And that is the essential difference if you have a fiery prayer life yeah. in the midst of your movement or church or ministry, whatever you want to say. Keep going. It's so good. <laughs> so, um, so this prayer launches, I mean, you can't be a community that prays very long without, uh, Mike Bickle says this, but the longer you spend in prayer, it's only a matter of time until you run headlong into the evangelist of the ages, which is Jesus himself. Yeah. Um, and you get compelled to go preach the gospel and to go give your life. However, that would be, um, on the foreign missions field or, or domestic. So, uh, that happens in 1731, <clears throat> um, Count met a converted slave from the West Indies when he was traveling in Europe. Um, um, and named Anthony Ulrich, and uh, he was Anthony was looking for anyone who would come to the West Indies to preach the gospel, who would come back. Uh, and so, Count Zinzendorf, um, you know, goes back to the Moravian to Hernhut and starts sharing these stories. And these two young men in their late teens, early twenties, are so gripped. And there's a bunch of different versions of the story, but I think after research, what I've concluded this is the this is the truest one I can find is. Um, that they decided uh, that they were going to go. These two young teenage men decided we're going to go to the West Indies. And this was the, the important thing here to note is that before this moment, missionaries weren't sent out. There, there weren't any mm -hmm. around the world. There was some Catholic priests who were stationed, you mm -hmm. know, and then uh, I think, you know, because the Reformation was still underway and there's still persecution is starting to wind down. So churches are just trying to survive and they're not thinking about sending people anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just, the Protestants are like, can we make it? Maybe yeah. there's a couple who are going, but it's not like we're sending you out as missionaries. It's like, they're just, it's more like a diaspora. They're just, they have to go somewhere. Yeah. So, but this moment there's these two young men and they cannot get away. And they're having all these confirmations of opening the Bible and landing on one verse that says like, go. And you know, I, it's just these amazing things are happening. And these men just, side, we've got to give up our careers, give up our callings, give up whatever we we're going to do and, and get on a ship and go from Germany all the way to the West Indies and give our lives as missionaries. So they go and after, uh, you know, a, a few months, they start to see some people actually converted and see some, yeah. see salvation. And then, but it wasn't just those two is the thing. Count Zinzendorf fostered this environment in Hernhut that it was, it became a normal thing for families yeah. to give their lives for missions. So entire families would leave and go to the missions field. Some men would literally have to sell themselves into slavery to reach certain parts of the world. Yeah. And they, some, some men literally sold themselves into slavery and who were married. Yeah. And so they said bye to their wives and, and left yeah. and to be missionaries because yeah. God told them to. And there's these crazy stories of Moravians, you know, having visions of Jesus crying and saying, who's going to go and all these things. Um, and, I, and, and I'll pause you there just for a second yeah. before, before you go on. That sounds so crazy to us. Yeah. In our context, in our cultural context. Now, I'm not here to comment about marriage and what it should look like. But the point is, is if the wife is willing to let the husband go and the husband is willing to go, there's something of that tenacity that I want in my Christian life. Yeah. 
I'm not saying leave my wife to go to. Uh, thankfully, we live in a different day, so I yeah. don't necessarily have to do that. But nonetheless, there is that tenacity, that fervency where really they d- when we say I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. Mm-hmm. These people actually did that. Yeah. And they did it with a, even in, in some ways a much higher cost. Now, I know this story might be fabricated. It might not even be true. It might be folklore. But it's that story that you kind of were hinting at a little bit of these two Moravians that were sold into slavery. And, and you know, this, this story, there's a lot of mystery around it, if it's actually true or not. But if it's folklore, if you as a movement as a community are having stories made up about you that are like selling yourself into slavery and saying crazy things while you're taking ship uh, and heading off to the West Indies, then uh, there's probably an element of truth in the culture so, of it. And, and that the, they're believable. Exa- exactly. <laughs> and that they're believable. So, so the, so the story goes like this two two young missionaries sold themselves into slavery to go to the West Indies. And they, as they're shipping out, their families are on the docks crying, all this different stuff. And they, they hear a cry come from the ship back to the family and it says may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering and that's such an echo for us in YWAM especially over the last 10-15 years may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering and then the intensity of that moment whether true or not there's something in it of truth for us to learn in the culture piece keep going Michael that's true May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. Was the the Moravians coined that phrase, and it, it spread around the world. You yes. Know? So, so it's amazing things about their community in the height of this missions movement. So they they went on for the next you know de- few decades sending out missionaries, and their community was growing. So by the end of the Moravians missions movement, uh, there was about six hundred people that would be considered like part of her, not part of that community. Mm-hmm. And and uh, by the end of this kind of era, it's estimated that one sixth of their community had been sent out as yeah. missionaries. And at the height of the Moravians missions movement, this is crazy. Just think about this through the lens of your own community. In the height of their missions movement, one out of every three Moravians was sent as a missionary abroad to some other nation. That is crazy. Imagine a a Christian community today where one out of every three people in your community is being sent out as a missionary. I mean, that is a 600 person church would be a pretty big church. Yeah. I mean, that would, I mean, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a mega church, but it also wouldn't be like, you know, you, you need a building, you need all those things. And imagine if of those 600, 200 of them were either going to be missionaries or were about to be sent as missionaries. It would, that would change the vibrancy that would change the, that would change the face of Christianity on the earth earth. Yeah. And I love Keith Green. He's so wild. But, you know, he's he said it is more likely as a Christian that you need a word to stay than you do need to go. Yeah. Hear that again. Hey. You need a word to stay, not a word to go. The Bible says to go. And so if you don't, it's disobedience. And so that is such a mind rattling fact. And I even, I, there's a story of Moravians where, you know, cause obviously at that time, you know, ships and yeah, it was just modern medicine, you know, people would die obviously as they would go. And many of them did. And True. they had a, they had a phrase, uh, almost like you would hear in like a military, in the military of our days, like next man up. And when they'd hear of a passing of a missionary, they would say, okay, who's the person that's going to go fill their slot. Come on. 
And so that that is it's such a it's such a radical way of thinking. It's not even radical. It's just the Bible. It's the it's the depth of love you have for Jesus and his yeah. gospel. Yeah, that that controls that person to go like that. <clears throat> it's true. So the culture of the Moravians was so incredible. And it was it was the culture of their community that was focused on. Again, we've talked about it in so many of these, but it's it's about the worth of Jesus. It's oh, my goodness. Who is this? man who, this God man who died for me and took my place, this innocent lamb who'd been slain. Uh, and then it's also his worth is, is compelling me to go. And it's also look at the lost and the unevangelized of the world. Who is going to tell them about Jesus, mm-hmm. that he would receive the reward of his suffering on the cross. Yeah. That that's the message of the Moravians. And yeah. um, so it was this culture that had fully, I mean, just become this vibrant community. Um, I'm going to read a couple of the quotes of, from Count Zinzendorf because they're just do. so amazing. And these show the way that he would be able to uphold the cultures. This is how he talked. So Count Zinzendorf said a couple of these things. He said, I am, as ever, a poor sinner, a captive of eternal love. Man, how many Christians do you know that would say I'm a, captain of, I'm a captive of eternal love? <laughs> I am a captive of of eternal love running by the side of Jesus's triumphal chariot. And I have no desire to be anything else as long as I live. He also said, I have but one passion. It is he, it is he alone. The world is the field and the field is the world. And henceforth, whatever country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. I am destined to proclaim the message unmindful, unmindful of personal consequences to myself. I will preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Wow. Uh, All right. (laughs) I don't know what to say, honestly. It's the, that, that is the, See, people often want language like that. They yeah. want it, but but you don't get language because you had a Holy Spirit moment where you felt the anointing or something hit you and came upon you. you that is years yeah. of saying yes. That is years of actually day in, day out going, he, he is actually every. And the reason you feel that weight is not because Michael or I are reading something. It's because the man's words ring true from, from the pages, mm-hmm. from the things he wrote, from the things he said and people wrote down still in our day. They have weight and authority because the man was, it wasn't a token statement. It wasn't a potent poet writing that. It was a man who believed exactly what he wrote. That's what he lived for. We kind of have to, I mean, we could go on the Moravians for like another 80 years. I mean, it's amazing though. This last thing I'll say. So then in, in about 10 or 15 years, they went to Greenland, Georgia, Suriname, Africa's Guinea coast, South Africa, Amsterdam, Algeria, the North American Indians, Romania, Constantinople, uh, and, and beyond. And in uh, in about 20 years, they saw about 3,000 converts. Wow. So it wasn't just they're sending out all these missionaries with no success. Mm-hmm. They saw 3,000 people baptized in the course of 20 years, which at that time, I know t- today you're like, oh, that's like 1% of Reinhard Bonnke's crusades. But at this time, there was no missions movement at all and barely yeah. anyone doing evangelistic work. Yeah. Like, that just wasn't what happened. People, you know, you grew up in your town and you did your religion and you went to church and that was what you did. And, you know, but there's a revival that broke out and 3000 people 
were added to the number of, and uh, I mean, at the time, okay, so in, in 1700, I have these kind of for each hundred years. In 1700, globally, it's estimated by historians that there is about 200,000 200, Christians, like sincere believers. So 3,000 were added to their number by the Moravian movement. Yeah. Wow. So that's 3,000, that's about, you know, 1.5% or something of the population of the world was affected yeah. by the Moravian the Missions believers, Movement. Yeah. I say, think about that, guys. 200,000 believers in the year 1700, they estimate. Now there's 1.6 there's, billion. Now there's uh, about 1.9 billion believers globally. And obviously we don't know the state of all of those yeah. believers, but one point not. So really it shows you the the fruit of the Reformation. Absolutely. It shows you the fruit of, of the, the Moravian movement. Okay. Now tell us, take us into how this now plays into the rest of missions history. All right. This is where, this is where it gets good. <laughs> this is Michael. Michael's putting his Woo! professor hat on. Now. Okay. So I want you guys to stay with me here. This is going to be exciting. So Count Zinzendorf. He was an innovator. This was not something that was happening. There were no missionaries around the world. And then Count Zinzendorf starts sending out Moravians. And Christians in other parts of the world are seeing what's happening. And they're saying, what in the world is going on out of Germany? Because you could go, you could get on a ship and go as far as that ship would take you. You could get off. You could get in a railroad, go as far as railroad would take you, get off, and then hike as far as you could hike into the middle of nowhere, and then you would find a Moravian chapel because a Moravian had already been there to preach the gospel and somewhere in the world. And, uh, and so people were taking notice, and in the 1700s, other Christians got activated, and for the first time, Protestant Christians started saying, it's time to send out missionaries. Yeah. So um, the first missionary actually to ever leave the shores of America, this is amazing, is a man named George Lyle. So he was actually a freed slave. And uh, a lot of people would, would think that, you know, one of the first missionaries, that the first missionaries from America was Adoniram Judson, which he was the first missionary to go to uh, to go overseas, like far. But George Lyle actually was the first missionary to leave the shores of the United States of America. And uh, it's amazing. He was born in 1750. And then in 17, where is it on here? 1783. 1783, um, George Lyle ends up heading to Jamaica, um, and indirectly or directly by about 1814. So he was there for about uh, 30 years. He saw 8,000 people converted to Christianity and baptized in Jamaica. So that's pretty amazing. So it's the first missionary from American soil was a African American freed slave, wow. George Lyle. Amazing. I think there's an inheritance in the African American community in America of missionaries. Yeah. And yeah. as circuit riders, we are believing for one million African American missionaries to be sent all over the world, or just even African missionaries to be sent all over the world um, to touch the world. And we believe that part of the Great Commission being fulfilled in our lifetime, uh, which is possible, is going to come through the um, the work and the prayer and the preaching of the uh, the African and African-American missionaries. So, so, true, um, so next is William Carey. So William Carey has this moment where, uh, you know, he's being labeled as an enthusiast mm -hmm. and he's in the United Kingdom and he's starting to study the Great Commission. And William Carey, this is in 17, he was born in 1760, so in the late 1700s. William Carey uh, is, he's starting to get encountered by the Holy Spirit as he's reading the Great Commission. 
Um, and he's labeled, it's so funny, uh, he, his statement that seemed so controversial in his time. He said, the Great Commission, which is go, therefore, into all the nations of the earth, making disciples of them, baptizing them, them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's the Great Commission. Now, William Carey believed this controversial statement that the Great Commission is actually a command that belongs to every generation of Christians. <laughs> it wasn't just for the apostles. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah. The Great Commission is not just for the 12 apostles yeah. and everyone who was standing there when Jesus ascended to heaven. The Great Commission is actually for every believer in yeah. every generation. Now, this was the massive controversial statement, and he was labeled an enthusiast, a miserable enthusiast is what they called him. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, William Carey. And then in 1793, though, they begin hearing the stories of what the Moravians had done. And William Carey says, my goodness, look what Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians have done. And how can we expect anything different that the Lord would not meet us in the same way if we go out? So William Carey began uh, preparing to go and head out to India. And William Carey, uh, he ends up heading into India and seeing the Bible translated into 10 different native languages in India, seeing thousands, he and his team would um, eventually, after a few years and, and uh, some hard laboring, people dying and crazy stuff happening, but they would see a few thousand people end up coming to know Jesus. And really, most people will attribute that the modern day missions movement, the father of that movement was William Carey. But William Carey would look right back at them and say, no, it was Count Zinzendorf. So uh, William Carey starts the, this Baptist missions movement. Um, and you gotta you gotta say his quote there. Uh, expect great things. So uh, I just is that I, what you're talking about? Yeah, I, lo I love this. this <laughs> okay, is, so um, as William Carey, I love this quote, guys, because it it Christians oftentimes have a very low view of how things can turn out um, because we think very uh, businesslike. We just we've got to run a business model church. Do this, and you'll get three hundred. Do this, you'll get a thousand. Do this, you get that. And these guys all kind of blow that out of the water because so it's such a reliance on God's power. When you rely on God's power, when you rely on true gospel preaching, when you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, who knows what ends mm -hmm. up happening? That's so <laughs> and, true. And, and there's, an, there's a scariness to that. Yeah. We like to control things. We like to make sure that we know what, what the outcome is going to be. Uh, William Carey thought so, about it a little bit differently. William Carey did think about it differently. And as he sent out missionaries, the way he trained them to think, this is what he would say to every missionary that would go from the Baptist Missionary Society. He said, expect great things and attempt great things. So good. That's simple. Expect great things and attempt great things. Because yeah. if you don't, so that's the thing is a lot of people just, they, they go uh, as missionaries, and I just I've I've seen this yes. so often. True. They go expecting not great things. Yeah. They expect little fruit. Yeah. And they'll tell you, you know, all the or older. And, and there is something to be saying about suffering in the mission field. Yeah, not totally. Necessarily. But there there is an over uh, uh, 
overemphasis sometimes on how how hard in suffering it's going yeah. to be, which it totally could be that way. Yes. But that, but because they, but they went through that. But that wasn't their motto. That wasn't their motto. And the, their motto was expect and, great things and attempt great things. And they suffered way more than any totally. of us ever oh, yeah, will yeah. probably. And, and the, but what I love about this is William Carey is an old seasoned missionary, mm-hmm. and so often it's older seasoned missionaries. And I'm not, I'm not dogging anybody. There's so many amazing ones out there, but often they're like. Don't get your hopes up. You yeah. know, it's going to be hard. True. You know, you might Run go in. 20 years and only see one person saved and those things, which those things are true and those stories are real and they do happen. But I love William Carey. He didn't think that he was, he didn't have the mind to seed that into the young missionaries he was yeah. sending out. He said, expect great things, attempt great things. Yes. And both of those coincide. Sometimes you get fanciful and you're, I'm going to, I'm going to believe for a, a trillion people. Yeah. Like, there's not even a trillion people on the planet, but then that person doesn't do anything. And we kind of yeah. talked about this last week, or you go there and you, you can't attempt great things if you don't have a mind that's expecting great things. Mm-hmm. And so they coincide. If you're going to believe for great things, then you need to do things that uh, great things would yeah. necessitate. And then as well, if, if you're going to think that you're going to go do great things, you have to expect great things. It's a wonderful quote. It's so Keep true. Going. It's so true. So, uh, so missionary societies at this time now, people are starting to see the fruit of what William Carey's doing and the Moravians. And, and so they're starting to form missionary societies. And now there's not persecution from the Catholic church. Um, at least not that leads to death. And, mm. um, so a lot of Protestant churches are now getting more established. They're actually having real estate. They have mm-hmm. congregations. They're getting more resources. Technology is increasing. The ability to travel further distances in a safer way. So all this stuff is happening towards the end of the 1700s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so n- now you start to see the rumblings of the beginning of the modern-day missions movement af- after William Carey kind of leads the charge in that sense. All inspired by the Moravian movement. which All is just- inspired by the Moravians. Um, it's amazing. And remember, remember, we we've already touched on this, but John Wesley yep. directly owes his conversion to the Moravians. To, to Moravians, yeah, which they inspire the circuit. So once again, you're connect connect the dots. It's all connected. Yeah. yeah, the Moravians met John Wesley on a ship across the Atlantic in the 1730s, and John Wesley realized he wasn't saved when he saw how committed and fearless they were, um, and then he ends up going back and getting saved and becoming John Wesley. Yeah. So, um, which he was 35 when he got saved. So yeah. if you're, you know feel like you're a late bloomer. John Wesley was a later bloomer. So take heart. That's why uh, I love, I'm sorry guys, it's such a random comment, but that's why I love history. Yeah. History will depress you. It will shock you. Yeah. And it also, and mainly for me, it inspires me to, uh, not limit God. Yeah. Not limit him in any way, shape or form. It's true. So here, here we come into the 1800s and this is where things start to get exciting because now there's kind of more global momentum at this point. So in, in get this in 1700, this is just, this is, this is about to blow your mind. This is what the first missions movement of the Moravians and William Carey's and others in the, the original days did in this one century. From 1700, there was 200,000 known believers on the planet. In 1800, there was 2 million. Wow. So it was a tenfold increase in believers globally. increase. Yeah. I think if I'm getting that right. Yeah. Hopefully, please don't be a fact checker. <laughs> Basically, 200,000 times 10. Yes. Two million yes. believers Gosh. globally after the first global push of missions. So you see there was some effect, right? Something good happened there. And in the 1800s, as a response, it's all connected, guys. 
as it's all connected. So as a response to now a huge, a, a way larger percentage of the globe is Christian. And what happens? The abolishing of slavery happens in the 1800s. Yeah. So incredible. Um, the second great awakening. And then the 1800s, when you start to get into some of the most amazing revivalists and these incredible guys that you hear about and, mm -hmm. um, the Spurgeons and the, um, the, uh, uh, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, yeah, D.L. Moody, uh, Charles Finney, all these guys. Um, and then you also see the, the kind of the missions heroes, so the Hudson Taylors, the Adoniram Judsons, the um, the Royal Wilders, the all these guys that, that are launched out and that we read books about in their biographies now mm -hmm. was during the 1800s. So let's jump into some of these guys. Um, so famous story, the Haystack Prayer Meeting, mm -hmm. 1806. This is so funny to me that this is something that people talk about. Yeah. <laughs> But I know. It, I've always thought that too. I'm like, yeah, but, but it, it's attributed. It must by, have been, it, it, and back in the day, if you would have read, if you would have heard about it or you were a part of it, you probably would understand why we're talking about it now, yeah. but they just got in a prayer. They just, you, you, you say, it, you it's know, a bunch of, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of like college age dudes. They went to Williams college in Massachusetts and they're basically in a theological debate <laughs> or argument. Uh, because they're reading these stories of David Brainerd and William Carey and these missionaries, and they're like, could God use us as missionaries? But at that time, it was, it was laughable. So they were in a secret conversation, these friends, a few guys. Samuel J. Mills was one of them. Um, Adoniram Judson was in that friend group. Royal Wilder was connected with them as well. <clears throat> and uh, these guys are all kind of talking and they're on the field and they get so enraptured they don't notice a storm rolling up and then all of a sudden there's a downpour that breaks out and this thunderstorm and lightning and so they run to find refuge and they find this haystack and they have to hide kind of behind and under this haystack and it becomes this famous moment called the, the haystack prayer meeting and they're all sitting there kind of silently after they're all ruminating on this deep conversation and this prayer that they're praying God would you give us the courage should we be missionaries and then in this moment in this haystack prayer meeting I love this so much. Samuel J. Mills stands up out of, after a long moment of silence in this heavy downpour. And he says, if we will, we can. Mm -hmm. If we will, we can. Wow. And what he was talking about was seeing the evangelization of the world in his generation. Wow. And he was so convinced from that moment, the Holy Spirit launched something in him and all the students that were with him. If we will go, we can see it happen. And I just love that spirit. So out of that, all these guys, you know, end up launching out and becoming missionaries. So Adoniram Judson becomes the first missionary to Burma, sees such incredible things happen right after he graduates from university. He spends his entire life laboring there, loses three. Wish we could. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have three, time. With three wives, tons of kids. Adoniram Judson, we'll just comment on him for a second. I mean, I wish we could go into it, but he, he grows up in a Christian, Christian household. He goes to Brown, which is an Ivy League school now, and he at that school becomes a deist, which if you don't know what deism is, it's basically you believe there's a God, he's up there, but he left the earth, he left the universe on its own measure. So it's kind of like, like a clock. kind of uh, some sort of uh, agnosticism or atheism, but uh, that there is still a God, but it is basically atheism and agnosticism in some sense. And, uh, he goes on he eventually, you know, he, t he didn't even tell his parents while he's at school. He actually is valid. He was a valedictorian at Brown. 
and he he gives his address and it was so foggy it was so strange the address that his parents didn't really know what was going on and so he he tells his he tells his parents eventually he goes off to new york city to become some sort of show business person and then he starts to have this spiritual awakening again he goes and he tries to visit his uncle and when he's visiting his uncle his uncle's not there but he finds a book and, and in the book um, it's about god and he starts to wonder is there did i miss something about christianity did i did i prejudge it in some way did i did i let and and at, this is a very important at brown the friend that convinced him to be a deist was jacob eames and so while he's on his way back he's traveling he's doing different things eventually he has to stay at this inn and at the end, there was no room except for a room right next to a man who was dying. And the clerk tells him that. And he still chose to stay there. And he heard, he, remember, he's in a spiritual awakening moment. And he's hearing this uh, man die throughout the night. He's hearing the groans and all this different stuff. And he's thinking about his own death. He's thinking about, why do I care? If I'm a deist, if I don't believe any of this this gospel stuff. If I don't believe in biblical, if I don't believe any of that stuff, why, why am I scared to die? So he wakes up, he go, he, he asks, he's leaving. He asks the clerk, what happened to the man? He said he passed away in the middle of the night. And just out of curiosity, for no other reason, just curiosity, he asked what his name was. And his name was Jacob Eames. And he was the, this was the shock moment for him. My friend who convinced me to be a deist was crying the whole night in death. Why, why would it matter? We're all just, we're, we're nothing in the grand scheme of the universe. Why would he be agonizing like that? This leads him to a salvation moment. This leads him then to, to his moments of uh, awakening with the missions like you yeah. were talking about. And then he becomes what it, people would say would be the first foreign missionary outside of, you know, long distance, modern day Myanmar, Burma, I mean, sorry, yeah, modern day Myanmar, back in the day, Burma. And, um, you know, to this day, there's 3 million Baptists in Burma, in Myanmar, because of, because of Adoniram Judson. So he, he's one of those guys. You go, to, yeah. you go to the next one. It's good. So this, this is the Haystack prayer meeting. It's, I mean, I guess the reason why it was so historically important is because the men who were there, who made the decision, they actually followed through on what they talked about and yeah. went all over the world. Um, another guy uh, who was part of that group, he wasn't in the Haystack prayer meeting, but he was connected. His name is Royal Wilder, which is probably one of the coolest names yeah. in all of... All of history, but Christian history, Royal Wilder. You are having a kid soon, so. <laughs> That's true. Probably name him after Royal yeah. Wilder. Royal Wilder Pierce. Royal, Royal Derek Wilder Pierce. <laughs> yeah. Or you could go with Derek first. <laughs> okay, Derek Royal yeah. So, okay, Royal Wilder in 1846, one of the very first missionaries after Adoniram Judson to sail uh, overseas. Uh, and this is, you know, a few decades later, so it took some time. Yeah. Um, but uh, at that time, there's a lot more arrangements that had to be made, I guess, and raising money and being approved Raise by missions board and all this stuff. So Royal Wilder ends up going to India and for 30 years gives his life as a missionary till he is literally too sick to continue living in India. He returns back and uh, is in America. He has a son named Robert Wilder. Robert Wilder, you've probably heard of. Yeah. Um, if you've been at any way a student of the, or studied the student volunteer missions movement. So um, it's amazing. Uh, we have, okay, this is important. So after Royal Wilder then, unconnected from the Haystack prayer meeting, there's a man named Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor, oh, if... He it, is Hudson Taylor. That's why he's my, reacting that way. <laughs> I could cry, right? Literally, I might end up accidentally getting emotional. 
because Hudson Taylor, if there's to- a top three biographies that have changed my life, uh, in the top three, probably the number one is Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Um, I would recommend it to anyone. You should buy it on Amazon right now. It's probably $8. Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. It's his story of Gosh. what this man did. And when he showed up, uh, he was, a, he was a studying to be a doctor in his early 20s because he wanted to be a missionary. And his stories of living by faith and he just was so faithful to Jesus all the days of his life. He ends up landing in China in a time when missions was coastal. So global missions at this time was largely coastal. Very few people were traveling inland because inland is where you would get diseases, where natives would kill you. Uh, and people were just like, why would you waste your life and go in there? We can establish these kind of... Uh, outposts on the coastal cities, but what they turned into was a bunch, this is so sad. Ah, this is, it makes your blood boil. Just get, get ready for this. So Hudson Taylor shows up in China and this is the picture of missions in the day. He, he arrives in the missionary societies had created these little outposts next to these Chinese cities that basically they had built their own almost mini colonies and they just lived. They were super nice. They imported all of the British furniture, all the British um, goods and uh, clothing and food and tea and fine tea. And, and they're all living on this uh, financial support that has been raised by these missionary societies and their way of evangelizing was handing out tracts in English to the Chinese people and trying to get them to come to services. And they were, as you can imagine, seeing nothing happen, uh, barely any fruit. I doubt, I mean, and they would try and educate and they would have schools where they would try and teach the young kids English and really Christianize them more than like introduce them to Jesus, if that makes sense. And that's what, that's what global missions was in a, in a lot of sense, not William Carey, but it's what it had turned into in in a lot of ways. And Hudson Taylor says, what are we doing? He shows up as a 23 year old, I believe in his early twenties in China. And he says the, one of his first moves, which he ends up getting excommunicated from his missionary society for this. Literally, they were supporting him financially from Great Britain and they cut him off because they didn't agree theologically with this next move. So he shows up, he decides, I'm going to buy a Chinese clothing, I'm going to rent an apartment inside this Chinese city instead of living where all the uh, British live. I'm going to shave my head the way the Chinese men do, grow out a long braid, dye my hair black, and grow a mustache, and wear Chinese clothes, and learn Chinese living in a Chinese town, uh, in a Chinese apartment. And so he does that. And his stories are crazy of almost dying, you know, living with rats, sleeping with rats, crawling over him, uh, literally wearing all the clothes, getting excommunicated by the missionaries. They called him crazy. Mm -hmm. But by the end of Hudson Taylor's life, every single one of the provinces of China had been opened up and thousands of missionaries flooded the entire nation, seeing tens of thousands of baptisms and conversions to Christianity. And today, China is the largest church in the world the most vibrant, explosive. They say 10,000 a day are being saved in China um, right now. Um, For the last 30 years, it's been the greatest revival in human history. And Hudson Taylor was the man who busted open the door and he reformed global missions in that, in, in doing what he did as a 23 year old, he changed the way global missions would be done for history um, and became incarnational. You talk about incarnational ministry. Hudson Taylor is one of the first people to do that besides, you know, the original book of Acts where he would go in and say, I'm going to live with the people, be like the people and reach the people. And he did. And it's amazing. 
what he went through. There's so many quotes and things to read I, I won't go into on his life. But Hudson Taylor, you can't talk about modern missions without talking wow. about him. This is one quote. There's so many. But this is one quote from Hudson Taylor. He says, The master has said nothing about politics or finances in the Great Commission. Go. I am with you. That's how the command and promise read. Was he not worthy of trust and utmost allegiance? Oh, that's epic. It's so good. He says he doesn't say anything about politics or finance. So why would you be concerned with that? Just go. He said, yeah. go, I'm with you. That's the command and promise. Isn't he trustworthy? Isn't he worthy of all of your trust and yeah. all of your allegiance? That was Hudson Taylor's life. And at the end of Hudson Taylor's life, you would look at him and say, Hudson Taylor, you've accomplished all this. You've changed the way global missions is done. You've, uh, you've opened up the doors for thousands of missionaries to flood in. You've seen tens of thousands of people converted. You've translated the Bible into so many Chinese yeah. dialects. What, uh, what would you say is the greatest work of your life? And Hudson Taylor would look back at you and a tear would run down his cheek and he would hold up a little 100 page commentary on the Song of Solomon. And he would say, this is my life's work. <laughs> That's epic. He would say, this is the most important work of my life was to study and understand the intimacy and knowing King Jesus as my bridegroom. That was the life work of Hudson Taylor. Wow. That's incredible, bro. I mean, gosh. <sighs> so... That's Hudson Taylor. Uh, we need to speed through the student volunteer missions movement. I don't want it's so it's so important. You know what would drive these men? Yeah. To this, you know, they just this is why it's so important uh, as a Christian that to keep the first things first and an eternal perspective. Uh, I don't want to say this. I'll say it bluntly, but I don't want to say it without you getting it. They just understood that eternity, and they understood the fact that men and women around the globe whether they heard the gospel or not, had to stand before a righteous judge one day mm -hmm. to give an account for their lives. And there's a whole, we could talk about that and, and the justice in that and all that different stuff, but they understood God's principle of justice. They understood God's principle of every person on the entire planet, not based on where you're from, not based on your culture, not based on your skin color, not based on any of that, based on you being a sinner, deserved justice, deserved hell ultimately. And they understood that. And that is, that's the thing. Like we were talking about Adoniram Judson. We've been talking about Hudson Taylor. Adoniram Judson, he would have people come from China. He'd have come from people come from all over the place. And they would ask him, are you the Jesus Christ man? The man who has a book that delivers from an eternal hell. We are, we are scared of that hell. Can you give us this book? Man. And that's what they would say to, to these men. That's what, that's the kind of things because they understood the reality and we owe a debt to them. If you are going to be a missionary, if you're inspired to that, you would owe a debt to these pioneers who you walk into many different places around the world with ease, able to do ministry, able to do anything you want because of men who suffered, men who died, men who shed their blood and their wives and their kids, all for the sake of men and women eternally knowing God, not just bettering their lives, not just culturizing them or whatever the thing is that you think was good. 
ultimately it was the eternal aspect yeah. that drove all of these these men so uh, i had to i had to say it because you sparked me while you were talking and and uh i just think it's important to note that 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 should be the driving factor of your gospel preaching yeah it's not is of course the worth of jesus number one of course obedience but ultimately the compassion and care for sinners yeah it's absolutely true and that was what led. So Hudson Taylor, what, as a missionary, he did all that. But not only did he do that, he was the first missionary to make clear back in his homeland what God was doing on the mission field and also the need. So another way that Hudson Taylor reformed global missions was he created media campaigns wow. that would be sent back to the United Kingdom to, to say, we need more missionaries. We need more funding. We need more, you know, all these things. Um, this is how you can give. This is how you can pray. This is how you can go. And so he was, became, he created one of the first on-ramps to make it easy for young people to come to missions. And then when he would go back, he would preach not just in churches but he would intentionally go to universities and he would he would preach and give calls for young for university students to become missionaries now this leads into uh the beginnings of the student volunteer missions movement so royal wilder and he comes back from india after 30 years remember haystack prayer meeting royal wilder he's got a son who was born on the missions field named robert wilder now robert wilder uh he this is this incredible, super genius student, uh, and he in the in the 1880s and some others organized with D.L. Moody, who was an evangelist at the time in the mm -hmm. late 1800s, they organized a coalition in kind of a summer gathering mm -hmm. that I believe was between one to three months, basically, of Bible teaching. It was like a Bible teaching conference where they would meet, they'd pray, they'd have Bible, they'd have amazing teachers and preachers and evangelists come and speak to, to kind of train these university students. And their goal was to get at least two representatives from every university in America at the time, which I think there's about 50 universities. Mm -hmm. So in Mount Hermon, Massachusetts, um, they gathered the Mount Hermon 100 in the summer of, I believe, 18, in the 1880s, I think 1886 or 1884. Um, and, uh, in this time, um, they, they, Robert Wilder had his father come and they, they start sharing on global missions and they, it wasn't even supposed to be a conference about missions, but it turned out where uh, all of these university students decided and there, there was a, a moment when the Holy Spirit fell and they said, we have to give our lives to become uh, missionaries and missionary zeal was born in the heart of American uh, and American university culture at this time in, in the Mount Hermon 100. Wow. And from that moment, uh, the, they start, they become the student volunteer missions movement and they form an actual formal organization with men like John R. Mott, who won a Nobel Peace Prize later in life. It's an amazing historical figure. There's buildings in Ivy League schools named after him. Um, he touched the world, John Mott. Um, Robert Wilder, uh, who was one of the students who kind of catalyzed the whole thing, ended up going on a tour for eight months around America where he would you know, sleep on trains, get off the train, preach at the university, pray for all the students who wanted to give their lives to missions, go to the next university. He literally went on a tour for eight months from campus to campus. And uh, Robert Wilder, this is in the late 1800s, he would go to universities, pack out the auditoriums. Mm -hmm. um, and these auditoriums would be full of young men. And he would get on stage and he would set a metronome ticking. And he would say, every time this metronome ticks, a thousand souls go to a Christless eternity around the globe. Is your life going to have a response to that? Wow. 
And then he would invite students to come and to sign these little pledge cards. And the cards had this line on them. It says, we, the undersigned, declare ourselves willing and desirous, God permitting, to go to the unevangelized portions of the world. Wow. And so they would sign these cards and commit to becoming missionaries. Now, at the time, there's very few missionaries around the world at all. There's, there's you know, a few hundred globally yeah. at this time that, that you could point to in the late 1800s. Missions is still not a massive thing. You, you know, you've got William Carey and his squad. You've got Hudson Taylor and the Moravians. And that's pretty much, that's it. Yeah. Um, and then a few others that aren't really... Yeah. So, um, so the, but the student volunteer missions movement, you see something tremendous happen where over a few decades after out of this tour in the Mount Hermon 100, 20,000 young people sign up and actually leave America and the United Kingdom and become missionaries to the uttermost parts of the world. And some of them would even uh, pack their things in their caskets and ship them across the Atlantic Ocean or the, uh, where they, because they, some of them, you know, they didn't know if they would die, if they would live there for the rest of their lives. Um, and they just literally would ship all their stuff in their caskets across the ocean. Um, and in a period of a few decades, 20,000 missionaries were sent out around the world. Yeah. Um, they would walk around and find nominal uh, university students, like kind of Christians that were kind of nominal. They would hand out tracts, the Student Volunteer Missions Movement. A lot of people don't know this, but just like you would hand out tracts for evangelization or to evangelize and preach the gospel, the Student Volunteer Missions Movement would hand out tracts to get people to sign up for missions, to get them exactly. to consider it. So there's this one man named James O. Frazier who ends up joining CT Stud and leading an entire people group to Jesus in, in southern China. His name is James O. Frazier. There's a book called Mountain Rain, his biography. It's incredible. But he was a university student who was not really... Uh, living wholeheartedly for Jesus, but he was handed this track and he got hit with this commitment. He said, I've got to go and give my life to be a missionary. This is what the track said. If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized and looked as of course he would look to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give. Of one thing I am certain, that the most of the excuses we are accustomed to make with such good conscience now, we shall be wholly ashamed of then. Yeah. That's definitely true. <laughs> he reads that and he says, that's, you're right. That's definitely true. And he goes and joins Hudson Taylor in China wow. as an engineering student um, from a university. So... The, the, it goes on. There's the Cambridge Seven. Some of the most famous athletes and cricketers in the world um, end up selling everything they have and moving to China. C.T. Studd is one of those. C.T. Studd works in China, then goes to India, but then ends up becoming a missionary who cracks open, after David Livingstone, the, the heart of Africa, and he founds what's called the Heart of Africa Mission, and is the first missionary to, to bring missionaries and send them by the thousands into the interior of Africa. And uh, crazy story. Of, he'll send in, you know, two 21-year-old 
women to the heart to a, a cannibalistic tribe of 5,000 and they'll lead them to Jesus. They'll meet the chief and the whole tribe will get converted and these two 21-year-old women in the heart of Africa mm. are, are leading this mission station of 5,000 um, tribal Africans in the 1800s, 1900s uh, to Jesus. So you really see global missions start to explode after the student volunteer missions movement and every continent ends up getting touched by some form of missions movement um, and, and you see by the thousands these uh, these missionaries leading so many and baptizing so many and uh, and that's really why how Christianity globally spread was in this era late 1800s early 1900s um, to, to coming up today so um, in uh, in here we go okay so in 1900 so remember 1800 there's two million Christians um, in 1900, so the next 100 years, mm-hmm. there's 558 million believers globally wow. by, by the year 1900. Wow. And in the 1900s, you see, you know, the continuation of the modern missions movement, the healing revivalists, evangelism, you know, Billy Graham, all these amazing guys, further reformation in the church. Scriptures start to get translated more and more into languages all over the world and leads us to where we are right now in the 2000s, where we've got 1.9 billion believers globally, yeah. um, some would say over 2 billion, 2.4 billion by 2020 um, in around the world of, of sincere believers. And the, the thing where this lands us, I know we've been talking a lot, but uh, it, it's, it's incredible. And I think to mention too, you know, cause we're following the storyline yeah. and even after this, the late stages, the student volunteer missions movement, you find a woman who is probably in my opinion from just study, is probably the most famous missionary of all time, just because how much she wrote mm. and how radical her life was. This would be Amy Carmichael. We've yeah. already done, we've already done, um, uh, a whole message on Amy Carmichael. You can go back to when we were do, when we had the late. We, we had a bunch of we had stuff like this, but for the ladies, um, in the later part of the summer, and we talk about Amy Carmichael there. And she, you know, Amy Carmichael is incredible for a million different reasons. But but she follows in the. She's from Northern Ireland. She follows in the coattails of C.T. Studd, inspired by C.T., inspired by Hudson Taylor, inspired by William Carey, inspired by those men who then are in return inspired by. Uh, the Moravians and you know Jim Elliott or, oh, you know, Jimmy. 1950s, he, he dies as a martyr to this mission. And it's not that he had such an impact on the mission field directly himself, but he actually uh, had an, his life had an inspiration for a ton of other missionaries yep. who then they impacted the world. And he was impacted by David Brainerd, who we really didn't touch on very much, but David Brainerd being impacted by the Moravians in the Great Awakening movement. So it's just, it's hilarious in some way, shape or form, how uncanny it is that all of this is extremely connected back to the year 1700 with Dorf till now in our day, which you're going to wrap us up with. I mean, it's just amazing. And I think to me, this timeline obliterates every way of thinking where we would say my yes doesn't matter. Yeah. Because you really see simple obedience does change history. Yeah. And you have no idea what your yes will be connected to and who your yes will be connected to and the generations that it will touch. Even if no one, I mean, when these guys were living, they weren't, people didn't think that they were the bee's knees. You know, they weren't, no one had written books about them yet, most of them. It's after they've died and gone to be with the Lord that people are looking at their lives and saying, my goodness, they were this inspiration. And, yeah. Um, and so it's not even, it can't even be gauged by your success while you're living. Yeah. Um, but it really is, man, what, what, 
kind of a seed is a life laid down for the gospel. How powerful is that seed and what can Jesus do with it? So where we are today, we currently, historically, are the first generation in human history. You are. You are the first generation in human history who can say with confidence and actually be telling the truth that we could see the Great Commission fulfilled in our lifetime. Yeah. That statistically with our resources, with how many people are unreached left on the planet and how many Christians there are today, what we've got access to we're, and our technology, we're the first generation that can say we could finish the task. Yeah. We could pick up the baton from Hudson Taylor and William Carey and Count Zinzendorf and John Wesley and, uh, and Amy Carmichael and Gladys Aylward and so many of these yes. amazing ones and, and pick up the baton and say, we're going to run all the way to the finish line. And in fact, if our grandchildren, everyone watching, if our grandchildren are not growing up with a completed great commission or a completed great commission near insight, every sing- disciples being made of every ethnic group, language group on the planet, then it's because we, you and I said no. Yeah. If we don't, if they aren't living in that reality, it's because we said no with what we've got access to. By the year 2033, for the first time in all of human history, yeah. by 2033, we will have the Bible in every single language on the planet. Well, and that includes sign language version of every single language on the planet. Uh, it's every language will have um, at least portions of the Bible and the, the gospel in translated. Yeah. And that the opportunity that we have that in, in basically 48 hours, you can be standing anywhere on the globe from where you are right now. Yeah. We have no excuse. And in five seconds, you can reach anyone almost in the world with a smartphone. It's true. Uh, the opportunity that we have right now for seeing the great commission fulfilled is unlike any previous generation we could see in Matthew chapter 24, when he says this gospel will be preached to all nations, to every ethnos, and then the end will come. I'm not saying that we're in the end times, but I'm saying that we are the first generation that that verse can apply to. (laughs) And so I'm just excited uh, because we can do it. Yes. And, and hearing these guys' stories and reading about them, I just think there's no better response than to say, Jesus, let my life be something that would, yeah. that would contribute to you receiving the reward yeah. of your suffering from every tribe, every tongue, every people yeah. on the earth. And so I think that really if I could bring it into a, any kind of a close, I guess, would be there are 7,000 unreached people groups on the planet and close to 3 billion people will go to sleep tonight without ever having heard the name Jesus. And I would ask you the same question. Count Zinzendorf asked himself, have you done something for him because you love him? Mm-hmm. Is there anything in your life? Have the, have you made decisions in response to seeing his worth and feeling that love explode in your heart and saying, my yeah. goodness, I've got to give everything. Yeah. And if Every Christian has the responsibility to either go themselves or if they can't go to to give and support and to pray. What of those are we doing? What of those are you doing? And we need to ask ourselves, if you're a married couple, ask, sit down with your spouse and say, what are we doing? Are we supposed to go? Are we supposed to give? Uh, you know, it, it's something that we can't afford as Christians in this hour not to ask yeah. ourselves. Yeah, and, and to your point there, Michael, one percent of the finances that the church has goes to global missions. 
If we gave 5%, we would overwhelm the mission field with finances. Overwhelm it. The amount that we, we would un- undoubtedly see the fulfillment of the Great Commission, every ethnos having gospel representation, people being reached on a daily basis, the, the ability to say that this place is not unreached anymore. If we would just give 5% yeah. to global missions, we would see that undoubtedly happen. And so I'd like you, for, for you, there's nothing more to say on this note. This, yeah. That was such an inspirational yeah. last, th- uh, the whole time has been, but the last five minutes when you really gave that, that I love that, how, how powerful a statement that is. Thanks for listening to a Circuit Rider podcast. For our full library of podcasts and more information about the Circuit Riders, visit us at circuitriders.com. To access worship, messages, and training courses, visit us at circuitriders.tv. To get involved with the day-to-day of what we do or see what's happening across the globe, you can follow us at Circuit Riders on Instagram. And finally, don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.